Well, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 12. And as you're doing that, I just want to talk a little bit about the text that we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at Romans chapter 12 and verse 13. And I'll just tell you from the very beginning that this isn't one of those jaw-dropping, astonishing texts in the Word of God. It's not something that we're, that we're necessarily going to hear and be just knocked over by. But it's essential. It's an essential text. The truth that it teaches is vital for us if we're going to be a church that thrives in these last days in the midst of the growing and expanding darkness that's in our society. We're going to need to hear these words, and we're going to need to take them seriously. So I want us to stand together. We're just going to start reading back in verse 9. Romans chapter 12, and we'll start in verse 9. We'll read through verse 13, and then we'll pray together. Paul writes, and this is the word of God, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Mighty God, you have saved us out of this world to belong to yourself. You have called us out of spiritual darkness and into light so that we might glorify and magnify you, so that we might glorify and honor and magnify the Lord Jesus Christ and so that we might walk in the Spirit obedient to your commands and pleasing in your sight. You've saved us so that we might be a testimony of your glory in this world. You've saved us so that we might be instrument, the instruments by which your gospel is proclaimed in this world. So that the effects of the gospel might be seen in this world. And so, Lord, as we look at and as we consider these verses in Romans 12, I pray that you will help us to see how vitally important it is that we strive in the power of the Spirit of God for obedience to these commands and these exhortations. How they matter. Not just in a moment, but they matter for eternity. I pray, Lord, that your word would have its its effect upon us. We know, Lord, that your word never returns to you void, but it always accomplishes the purpose for which you have sent it. And so I'm praying, Lord God, that you would send your word to us 
this morning, that we would receive your word this morning with great effect. That none of us would remain unmoved. That none of us would, would, would just blow this off and remain unthinking. But that, Lord, your word would, would grip our hearts and our souls. And that we would see the value, Lord, and the depth of your truth. We need you to come and be our teacher. I pray that you would empty me of myself and that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would help me to clearly articulate your truth today. I pray, Lord God, that in light of all that Christ has done to redeem us as your people, that we would see that these commandments and these exhortations, Lord God, they are not a burdensome thing at all. But they're right and they're good. And I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to interact with this truth today in a meaningful way. I pray for the body here. God, let their hearts be open to your truth. And do your work in us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, this morning we're coming to the close of this section of Romans chapter 12 that began in verse 9. And as we're doing it, I want us to take note of the progression that we see here beginning in verse 9. I want us to see the progression, the, the, the progression of these commands and these exhortations and these descriptions of what it looks like to be a genuine Christian. And I want us to notice how closely linked they are to one another and how verse 13 sort of is the the cherry on top, if you will. Go back with me to verse 9 for just a moment, right? Let me show you what I mean. If you look at verse 9, there Paul commands us what? He says, let your love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good, right? From the very beginning, Paul is saying this, as recipients of God's mercy, as those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, as those who have been, you know, rescued from the pit of sin, who have been set free from bondage to sin, made alive to God, here's the first thing that ought to be real about you. The first thing that ought to be real and authentic and genuine about you is your love for God. You ought to love God supremely you ought to love god with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength at least that should be your desire that should be your goal that should be the thing you're pressing for that god would have the whole of your heart that he would have the place of primacy right in your affections and in your soul in fact Beloved, the truth is, is that our love for God is really the foundation for every Christian grace that should mark the people of God. It starts there. It starts with loving God, who's loved us first, right? And then he tells us how to do that. He explains one way in which we can demonstrate our genuine love for God, and that is to abhor what's evil, right? And to love or to hold fast to what is good. In other words, one of the ways that we demonstrate that we love God is by what we hate. We're to hate sin. We're to hate the rebellious spirit of this age. We are to hate the ways and the values of this fallen world. And instead, we are to love what God loves. And God loves His glory. God loves His word of truth. God loves righteousness, doesn't He? God loves uprightness. He loves godliness and the like. And He loves His people. And so it makes perfect sense 
that if we have a genuine love for God, that must also lead us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? And so Paul tells us to do that in the very next verse, in verse 10, he says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. We're to love one another with a sincere and a faithful and an affectionate love. I think there's a reason that Paul speaks there about brotherly affection. I think it's because there, he knows the tendency in the human heart. And he knows that there are going to be Christians that are going to say, well, I don't really like you, but I have to love you in Christ. And that's impossible to do and follow this command. Because you're to love your brother with a brotherly affection, right? And one of the ways that we do that is by striving to show honor to one another, right? By humbling ourselves. By seeking to honor others and edify others and uplift others and, and bless our brothers and our sisters in Christ and, and, and not seeking to promote ourselves, right? That's, that's what we do. So we're to love God and we're to love one another, right? Then he tells us in verse 11. I want you to notice how these are linked. He tells us in verse 11, well, then don't be slothful in zeal, don't, but be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. In other words, okay, love God, love one another, and be busy in serving the Lord. And serve Him together is the idea. Don't be lazy or apathetic in your Christian walk. Be fervent and zealous in your service to the Lord. Use your energies for something more than your own life. Use your energies for His glory and for His praise. Spend your life for the sake of the kingdom of God and not your own. Do what pleases Him. Do the things that have eternal implications. Live as one who's been bought with a price, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Submit your will and your desires to Him so that he might receive glory as Lord of all, as Savior of sinners, and as righteous judge. Live in a manner that brings glory to God. Live in a manner in which your chief desire is to do that, which makes much of Christ and little of you. Right? And if you live that way, if you live with a compulsion to honor Christ as Lord, if you live for the praise of God and you live for the glory of Christ, you will necessarily be set at odds with a world that hates Christ and you will suffer tribulation, right? You will suffer afflictions. You will suffer hardship. You will suffer persecution. That is part and parcel of what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of allegiance to Him as Lord because of your faithfulness to His gospel, because of your steadfast stand on the truth of the Word of God, because of your pursuit for godly living, you will face tribulation. And so Paul tells us in verse 12, like we saw last week, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And his point is this, the only way that you can persevere with resolute endurance, the only way that you can stay the course to remain patient, refusing to compromise your faith in Christ in the face of tribulation, is if you've got the right perspective. 
is if you have set your heart and your mind on the blessed hope of Christ's appearing and the consummation of his kingdom, right? Right? Like the only way that I can endure in this world, being faithful to Christ, in the face of the persecution that comes against us, right? Is if my focus is not on this world. My focus is not on, you know, the, the ease of my life in this earth. But rather, my focus is on the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. The life of perfect joy and peace with the Lord God the Almighty and with Christ the Lamb in the eternal kingdom where the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb, right? i got to set my sights on the right thing if I'm going to patiently endure. And then second, we've got to be constantly in prayer, don't we? We've got to be seeking the Lord and drawing near with confidence, you know, to His throne of grace so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's only as we pray. It's only that as we avail ourselves of the, of the, of the, the nurturing power and the, and the energizing power of God and His faithfulness in prayer that we can endure to the end. But we don't do it as lone rangers. We don't do it as rugged individualists. We don't do it as the star of the show. Rather, we do it as a part of a team, part of the body. And that's why we read what we do when we come to verse 13. Look at it again with me. Paul says, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Now, if you're following along, this command makes perfect sense. And why do I say that? Well, here's why. Because in a society that is, an op- that is in opposition to open Christ followers, in a society in which, you know, we are in the world but not of the world because Christ has chosen us out of this world, in a world where we are aliens and exiles and strangers... And one that seeks to persecute Christians because of its hatred of Christ. Paul tells us, hey look, take care of one another. Look out for one another. Lay down your life for one another. Stand in the gap for one another. Look man, you guys are going to be facing all kinds of of persecution and difficulties and afflictions and hardships. This society is going to reject you and it's going to hate you because it hates me. And so you're going to need to love one another and you're going to need to support one another and you're going to need to come alongside one another and you're going to need to take care of one another. You're going to need to do it because there's nobody else in the world that's going to do it. You need to take care of one another. Have a solidarity with your brothers and your sisters in Christ. A tangible unity. Listen, you've got to be one another's safety net. Your lifeline for one another. Yes, God ensures that His people will endure. God ensures that His people will endure to the end. God ensures that His people will not fall away. But one of the ways that He does it is by drawing us together to take care of one another. Amen? In other words, we need to have an an expanded vision of what it means to be family. I'm glad one person agrees with me. But at least that's a start. I mean that. 
We need to have an extended view of what it means to be family in the church. Beloved, your family is not just the people you go home with at night. Or that sleep in your bed. Or that sit around your table on an average day, average night and eat your food. Your family is every single person who confesses Christ as Savior and Lord. Who knows Him as Redeemer and Rescuer. Your family is more than just your nuclear family. Your family, if you are a part of this body, look around. Is everyone in this room? And some that are missing. I'd give almost anything for just one Sunday when everybody who considers themselves a part of this body was actually here at the same time. I might have a stroke. We need to have a bigger view of what it means to be family. It's very easy to withdraw into our own four walls of our home, isn't it? Isn't it? It's really easy to withdraw into the four walls of our homes... And protect ourselves from the big bad world, but also cut ourselves off from our brothers and sisters in Christ. Who either need the, our ministry that we can provide, or we need the ministry that they can provide. Right? And we make ourselves all the weaker for it. I've had opportunities sometimes to talk to people that, you know, are affiliated, and I'll say loosely affiliated with this body, that come every only now and then. They're not, you know, Christers, but they're almost, they're close. They're more like quarters. Once a quarter they come kind of thing. And, and inevitably you'll hear the same kinds of complaints. Well, nobody cares about me, and nobody asks about me, and nobody's, well, you're not there. You're not a part of anyone's life. You're not invested in anybody more than you. What do you expect? How do you think that's going to work out? Beloved, we need to have a different heart about us from the rest of the world. The world is great at being, at uniting around worthless things and, you know, pulling back and protecting themselves when necessary. That's not who we are and that's not what we can be. We're the family of God in this church and we need to care for one another and that means you need to let people care for you and that means you need to learn who needs cared for and care for them are you hearing me i'm being real serious right now we'll get to this at the end of the sermon and i'll i'll throw it out there well no i'll just say it right now you know what we're going to talk about the importance of loving the word of god and how how the early church i'm going to get to that in a moment where the early church loved the word of god and they 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 really were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And they were also devoted to the fellowship. And I fear sometimes we are really devoted to, to the truth of the Word of God and not so much to one another. That's what worries me. That's what concerns me as a pastor. I don't think any of you would like willingly imbibe heresy. I don't, I don't think any of you would. I think you care about the truth. I think you really do care about the truth of the word of God. That if I started preaching, you know, Stephen Furtick crazyisms up here, you'd leave or you'd beat me. One of the two, right? I really do believe that. But I'm not so sure we take ministry to one another as seriously as we ought. Look at what Paul says here. 
Just the first half of this verse again. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Now, before we consider this text in detail, I want us to notice and I want to emphasize the object of this exhortation. The command here, beloved, is not to contribute to the needs of everybody in the entire world, is it? Is it? It's not contribute to every relief organization. It's not contribute to every grifter at the corner by Walmart. It's not contribute to every, you know, organization that has a heart-wrenching commercial where you can make such a huge difference with only a dollar a day. That's not the command here. That's not it. Yes, we're called to love our neighbors. Yes, we are called to be a good Samaritan to whomever we can. But beloved, the focus here, the focus in this text is on the saints. The saints. Now, the Catholic Church took this verse way out of context, and because they have a variety of different saints, you know, that they get to choose who they are, they use this as a way to fleece fleece the people. Okay? But if you study the Word of God, what you find out is this, is that when you read about saints, saints aren't a special class of Christians. Saints are not the elite Christians, you know, like the special forces of Christians. They're the saints. A saint is just somebody who's been set apart to God as holy by the Holy Spirit, who's been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, somebody whose sins have been forgiven, and in whose heart a work of saving grace has been wrought by the Holy Spirit. A saint is somebody who is now God's own precious possession. A saint, a saint is our brother or our sister in Christ. Again, Paul's not denying the need for us to be a neighbor to all people, but he is emphasizing that our priority is to be our fellow Christians. Paul says it in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Yes and amen. And, he says, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So the focus here is contribute to the needs of the household of the faith. Contribute to the needs of the saints, your brothers and your sisters in Christ. What does that mean? Well, let's just think about it. When Paul exhorts us here, contribute to the needs of the saints, the word that's translated here as contribute comes from a familiar Greek word. It is the Greek word koinoneo or koinonia, right, is the noun. It's a word that speaks of fellowship with somebody. It's a word that speaks of communion with someone. It's a word that speaks of partnership or of, or of, or of relationship. Paul is saying here, he's telling us, hey, look, you need to enter into fellowship with. You need to have a share in and a partner with and be a partner with your brothers and your sisters in their needs. What does that mean? What does that mean? Here's what it means. It means this. It means that your burden is my burden. It means that your affliction, your hardship 
It's my affliction and my hardship. It means your difficulty, that's my difficulty too. It means your need is my need. And vice versa. And it requires of us, beloved, real love and empathy towards one another. A a sincere care for one another. A real fellowship and solidarity. Not just a loose affiliation. And not just in word, but in action. In other words, in the body of Christ, there shouldn't be anybody that is under a weight of care and burden, that there's not a brother and a sister looking to carry that burden with them. But you know what you can't be? is sensitive to other people's needs when you're only concerned with the three-foot circle around you or the three-foot circle around your family. You can't be aware. You can't be available unless you take note. Of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now this was serious business in Paul's day. And I'll tell you why. You know the consequences for following Christ. Were often very severe. More severe than we see in our own society right now. But just give it time. They were really severe. To follow Christ often meant the loss of employment. It meant the loss of property. It meant the loss of, 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 you know, of any standing in society. You'd be ostracized. Right? Canceled. It meant the abandonment and the rejection of family and friends. And especially, it was dangerous for women and children who owned nothing in the ancient world. And so to care for and to partner with one another and to give generously and to alleviate needs and to sacrifice for the well-being of another brother or sister in Christ was an essential aspect of helping them survive. Tribulation and persecution was real, and there was no government safety net, especially not for Christians. And that's why Paul says, man, you've got to take care of one another. Following Christ is costly. You know it. You've experienced it. If you're a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know that to stand for Christ in this society has cost you something, and it's costing others, and some people it's costing more than it's costing you. And you need to look out for them. And you need to care for them. It's really simple calculus. Christ's lavish grace in giving himself for us on the cross when we were spiritually helpless, when we were destitute, ought to motivate us to be generous to our brothers and our sisters who are in need. It's an essential part of loving each other. In fact, that's why the Apostle Paul I'm sorry, the Apostle John says this in 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. He's very direct, in fact. The Apostle of love is really direct here. He says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods... And sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Sometimes we get the idea that Paul is the real harsh, meanie guy and all the stuff that he says. But that's pretty direct by John, isn't it? Apostle of love. Pretty direct. He's saying, look, if you say you love Christ, if you say you love God, 
and you're not caring for your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're a hypocrite. You're a liar. You're make-believe. That's what he's saying in essence. He's saying if, if you say, well, yeah, I, I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, but, but your life is not invested for the sake and care of other people that are in Christ with you, then you've either got a defective faith or a defective mind. Don't just love in word or talk. Talk is cheap, but love indeed and in truth. What does that mean for some of us? Well, it means for some of us that we just simply need to stop loving money as much as we do and start loving people more than we love money. Did you just say that? Yep. How much is enough? How much is too much? How much must you have in savings in order to feel secure? How much must you have in investments in order to feel secure? How much must you have in your bank account in order to feel secure? How much must you have? I would say to you it's far less than most of us usually think. I don't know how much we have in savings. There are probably some students in this church that have more in savings than we do. Not kidding. Do you love people or don't you? Do you really love the people of God or don't you? That's the question. But it's more than just material or financial things, right? That seems to be the answer for everything in our society. Just throw a little money at it. No, no, no. It's more than just material and financial. It is that. It's more. Entering into fellowship, having a share with someone in their need requires the giving of ourselves. Understand? It requires the giving of ourselves. Fellowship only comes through giving of yourself. Can I tell you what? Some people in churches never know the joy of true Christian fellowship because they don't know what it means to give themselves away. Or if they do, it scares them too much to do it. True fellowship among the people of God, it's got to be dangerously unselfish. Dangerously unselfish. Unselfish not just with our, our money or our goods, but with our time, with our love, a listening ear, an empathetic heart, uh, our availability to other people, praying and encouraging one another from the Word of God. Here's the thing. Not all needs are material ones, beloved. This is a lonely world for a committed Christian outside of the communion and the fellowship of the saints. It is. And we need each other. And we need real and rooted fellowship with one another. Look, there are many of us in this body, our extended family, outside of the house that we live in, they don't know Christ. They don't love Christ. They don't regard the Word of God. They have no evidence of any kind of real true relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we are with them, we feel like aliens in a strange world. You ever been there? We need a real and a rooted fellowship. A place where we feel welcomed. We feel part of one another. We're not on the outside looking in. And it's the presence or the absence of that kind of caring fellowship, this kind of, 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 of love and deed and truth that honestly is indicative of our hearts before God. In fact, Jesus sees... This 
kind of caring for one another as ministry and love that's expressed to him. Which is why he makes it a matter of judgment over in Matthew chapter 25. In fact, I want you to turn there with me. I want you to read these words. I don't want you just to hear me read them. I want you to read them. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the word of God is the very word of God. But again, these are the words of Christ. And look what he says here in Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 31. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Right? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now you read that, right? And you go, oh, he must, he's, he, what's, who is exactly is the scope that he's talking about here? Well, the scope is very clear. He's talking about the treatment of Christians, whom he refers to as what? My brothers. My brothers. When you did these things to the least of them, you were doing it to me. When you loved and cared for the least of the brothers, when you provided for the needs of the least of the brothers, when you gave a cup of cold water to the least of the brothers, when you visited the persecuted that were in prison amongst my brothers, when you did that, you were doing it unto me. You were doing it unto me. It's the same principle as when Christ confronted Paul on the road to Damascus when he was then Saul and said to him, why are you persecuting me? Paul wasn't actively persecuting Christ himself, was he? He was persecuting the people of God, right? Jesus said, when you care for your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're expressing your love and your care, your, your, your sincere love to me. You're loving your brother and your sister and you're loving Christ. 
And beloved, we need this right here in this church. As we navigate a world in which we are aliens and exiles, if we're not contributing to one another's needs and not caring for one another as we should, we will be all the weaker for it. And you know what? The devil will seek to pick us off one by one. And it's always easier to pick off people one by one than it is in a group, isn't it? Isn't it? Charles Spurgeon said, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. (laughs) That's pretty bold. Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It's his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything that can divide saints from one another, he delights in. He attaches far more importance to godly fellowship than we do. And since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. Beloved, listen to me. We can't be indifferent or oblivious. We can't allow ourselves to be lazy and unconcerned and individualistic and distant or distracted or self-protective because our Savior was none of those things when it came to our desperate need. Isn't that true? He left the throne of heaven. That's quite the step down. Oh, it might cost me something to serve my brother. (laughs) Not more than it cost Christ. He left the throne of heaven. He became one of us. He endured much on our behalf. He poured himself out for our good repeatedly. He was so gracious to his disciples, wasn't he? So kind to them, so compassionate, so long-suffering and forbearing, wasn't he? And then he shouldered our burden of sin as his own. And he paid the debt of our sin and he satisfied the wrath of God by his blood. Then he rose again. He's seated now at the right hand of God. And guess what? He's continually interceding for us and working all things together for our good. Does that sound like a self-interested Savior? Does it? Neither can we be. Neither can we be. Here's why caring for one another in this way is so important. Here's why it's so important, beloved. Caring for one another's needs physically and spiritually and emotionally and and relationally. It's because it's a matter of genuineness as it regards our faith. It's a matter of genuineness. Are you a genuine one or not? That's the question. It puts, beloved, the truth of the gospel on display, doesn't it? When we care for one another, does that not picture the care that the Lord God and and Jesus Christ has for us? It it puts the truth on display that God has reconciled us to himself and he's reconciled us to one another and made us members with one another, right? It, it, binds, it binds and strengthens us together. In fact, Corey Ten Boom, remember Corey Ten Boom? Does anybody even remember who she was anymore? We live in a world, man, that has like zero remembrance of history. Here's who, here's who Corey Ten Boom was. Corey Ten Boom was, was a Dutch Reformed Christian who was imprisoned in Ravensbrück, concentration camp during world war ii because she aided in the rescue of condemned jews okay and through her ministry at that concentration camp there were hundreds that came to faith in the lord jesus christ through her ministry here's what she said she said be united with other christians a wall with loose bricks is no good the bricks must be cemented together, right? So what does that mean for us? I mean, we, have, we, need to have a, we need to have a greater degree of commitment. 
to this family right here. We need to have a greater commitment to faithfulness and corporate worship here. If you're not a member, you need to join this church if you've been coming here and you're a part of it. You need to make the commitment. If We, we would do better by actually sitting close to one another. No, I mean it. The reason some of you don't know the other person is because you pretend we have a thousand people in this sanctuary. And so you've got to sit in your spot that is remote from everybody else. How different would it be if we actually had to rub shoulders with one another? And wear deodorant. Some of you still haven't gotten that memo. Saying. Really. It's simple things. That lead to deeper things. Then Paul exhorts us this in the last half of this verse. Seek to show hospitality. Seek to show hospitality. I want us to really understand what he's saying here. Because that word seek doesn't carry the force I wish that it did in the English language. That word that's translated here as seek is a powerful word. It means to follow hard after something, to pursue something, to chase after it. It was a word that was used of pursuing criminals. It was a word that was used to describe tracking animals, trying to track someone or an animal. Like, you know, like a bird dog tracking birds. It's all they're focused on. That's the idea. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that we are to pursue and look for every opportunity and take every chance and press hard after every occasion to express hospitality and kindness to our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Well, what is that? What is hospitality? It's a good question. The Greek word, philozenia, means, first of all, to show love for strangers. But it's got a broader meaning that includes opening your home and opening your life and opening your heart and your soul and sharing the love of Christ with someone. And it had a very special application in Paul's day. Christians, I mentioned to you earlier, were being persecuted bitterly in those days. And lots of times, they would have to leave their homes and even the region in which they lived. And they'd have to go elsewhere. They'd have to just pick up and move. It would be like somebody here having to get up and move out of southwestern Virginia and go to Texas. To avoid persecution. Well, where would they go? They couldn't find refuge in a world that rejected them. And so the only place they could find a bed or food or clothing or fellowship or an atmosphere of love was with other Christians whom they did not know, but with whom they were brother or sister in Christ. There weren't any hotels or motels in those days and the inns that existed were dangerous and they were rough and they were filthy and they were filled with all kinds of debauchery. And so persecution demanded that Christians open their homes to one another, to other Christians, even some whom they did not know. Was it always easy? Of course not. And that's why Peter says in his first epistle, in 1 Peter chapter 4, in verse 
8 and 9, he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And then he says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Why do you think he says that? Because there was the potential for what? Much grumbling. He says, Show hospitality to one another without complaining of the hardship of doing it. Without complaining about the time and the expenses and the trouble that was required. In fact, the idea here is is do it gladly. Do it willingly. Open up your home and be glad to do it. Open up your home and your table and your closet. Not unwillingly. Not complaining about the cost. Or considering it burdensome. Or expecting something in return. Or, you know, you know, bemoaning that, that they will stay too long. Or eat too much. Or talk too much. Instead, just... You know what? Do it without murmuring. Do it without grumbling. Do it with cheerfulness and gladness. Do it glad that you, by Christ's providence, are able to be a place of refuge for someone else. Now, you might hear this and say, well, this displacement of people is not the case in our country, at least right now. And so this command... To show hospitality, seek to show hospitality has no application to us. This is one we can pitchfork to somebody else. But to do that is to miss the point. And why do I say that? Here's why. Because we, all of us, are ourselves these displaced people. We are these aliens. We are these sojourners. Each one of us. This world's not our home. You remember what Peter said. He said, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. And then he goes on. All of us are sojourners and exiles. And so this concept of hospitality, of kindness, of active love for one another is very much applicable today. We are a body of aliens, not like the UFO aliens that they imagine exist. I mean, we are a body of aliens that are dispersed in this world, and we can only find a true home, a real reception and love among fellow believers. Isn't that true? And so we need to be seeking ways... To open our homes and to open our lives and to open our hearts and to open our souls and to share the love of Christ with one another. Because we all share in the common life with God that all believers have in Christ. We need to be sharing our lives with one another. Our lives need to be interwoven with each other in real and true relationship. And that means opening up our lives, especially our homes, to one another. I want you to think about this for a second. For those of us that are, are kind of reluctant to do that, like, I don't know if I want people coming to my house. You know? What stands in the way of us being as hospitable as we should, really? What of value stands in the way of us being hospitable as we ought to be? What is it, fear? Fear that people are going to stay too long if they come over? There will. It's going to happen. So what? 
What is it? Well, you know, maybe if they come over, they're going to think I don't keep my house very well. What if my kids or my dog act up? What if their kids act up? What if they bring their dog? I feel your pain. What if, what if it's hard to have a conversation with them? What if they don't like the food? What if, what if, what if? Can I tell you what? Here's the truth, beloved. There are a million what ifs that will cripple our obedience to the word of God and not a single one of them amounts to a hill of beans. Not one of them. I have never gone to somebody's house, been invited to somebody's house where I stuck in my back pocket a white glove, my white glove from when I was in the Navy so I could walk into their bathroom and give it the white glove treatment and find out just how well they keep their house. I mean, if you're a neurotic weirdo that does that kind of stuff, just stay home if somebody invites you. But, but really, it doesn't happen. I'll tell you this. There are a million what ifs. They're all excuses. And they steal from the enjoyment and from the blessing of hospitality. What's lost when we don't do life with one another is the way that hospitality strengthens bonds of love and the way that it ministers the love of Christ to the soul in such a powerful and a tangible way. Listen to me, real Christian hospitality does so much. Hospitality, listen to me, it provides a context for discipleship. You ever think about that? Some of the best times that I've ever had in, 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 a, in a, you know, being with other people outside of church is just the conversations that we have that revolve around Christ and His Word. And it's not anything that's like pre-planned or preconceived. And it's just the freedom of just discussing and talking about the things that really matter. Hospitality establishes an avenue for evangelism with lost family members that still live under your roof. You ever think about that? When, when Christians, sincere Christians get together and you've got some people that are under your roof that aren't believers and, and they see this enjoyment and this fellowship and this genuine love. It's a strong reminder of what they're missing. Hospitality does war on selfish individualism and it promotes, promotes, uh, promotes, yeah, promotes community and investment in the people of God. And you know what it does? It helps us to see something. It helps us to see that our houses, our homes, they're not museums. They're not fortresses. They are not, you know, These awesome abodes that should be featured in Southern living. What they really are, if you're a Christian, is they are a tool for the promotion of Christ. Aren't they? Aren't they? Hospitality teaches our children a servant's heart what is one of the most difficult things to teach our kids it's not all about you isn't it kids are born 
They're born this way with an incessant self-focus. Aren't they? It's all about me, 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 me. They're little me monsters running around, right? Problem is, some of them don't learn any better as they're growing up. And they stay that way. Don't they? Hospitality puts a stake in the heart of the me monster. And it helps your kids to see, you know what? This isn't about you. It's about us. And by us, I mean more than just the family. It's about us. It allows us to minister to one another in ways that we could never do otherwise. You know, we try to minister, the elders and I do, you know, at the end of the service at the front here. But sometimes the most important ministry takes place behind the scenes, over lunch, during a walk, during doing something together, hanging out. Well, I can tell you this, and here's the truth. I have never come away from a time when someone opened their home to my family or we opened our home to somebody else when I thought, man, am I glad that's over. Never. The more common refrain is, oh, man, I wish you didn't have to go. That's the more common refrain. You got to go? You got to get up early tomorrow? Really? You can't do with one hour less sleep? This might sound strange. I'm going to say it. This might sound strange. And I'm not saying this to to, to be hyper-spiritual or super-spiritual or in some false bravado kind of way. I can't stand those guys either. But there is a real blessing, beloved, I think, in the increasing difficulty and hostility and intolerance and persecution that we're experiencing in our society today. And that blessing is this. That there's nothing in a worldly sense like persecution and ostracism and being canceled to distinguish between the wheat and the tares and to galvanize and purify the church and to strengthen the bond between brothers and sisters in Christ and to unite our hearts and our lives together in a way that they otherwise would not be, to dismantle that foolish notion of I'm an island unto myself and to put out of our mouths a taste for the things of the world. There is nothing like hardship out there to soften our hearts to one another in here and as we leave this place so that we might actually invest in each other's lives. You know, when I read these words from Paul, when I meditate on them, I can't help but see the way that they reflect the early church in Jerusalem. 
You know, we're always talking about the early church in Jerusalem, right? How great a church that was. It was. And when I read these words from Paul in Romans, I can't help but think about how this sounds a lot like what he's going for here in verses 9 through 13. Sounds a lot like what the early church was like in Acts chapter 2 and described for us in verses 42 through 47. Luke describes it in this way. He says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, this isn't a sermon on the book of Acts, but I don't want us to miss the remarkable parallels with what Paul is saying here in Romans, right? He describes, Luke does, describes the church as being united. He describes it as a church that loved the word of God, that delighted in fellowship with the Lord and with one another. He describes it as a church that experienced the grace of God in powerful ways. They worshiped together and they cared for one another and they had lives that went beyond worship together in the temple, but lives that were folded into one another outside of it. They did life together. They hung out together in their homes together. They had favor with the people. Not all the people as we know, because we read about the persecution that came upon them, severe persecution. But the idea is this, is that the gospel and the reality of the gospel that transformed them and transformed their relationships made them winsome and attractive to some in the world. Who then later on were added to the church. Because they were saved by the testimony of the gospel and the evidence of it in their lives. Now, there's a lot that I could say from this text. And I I, I don't want to say a bunch, but I want us to focus on this phrase. This is the key phrase. Luke says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. That is the central phrase because it's the springboard for everything else in this text. Watch this. Luke says the thing that marked this church was devotion, right? That word devoted is a very, very strong word in the Greek. It emphasizes constancy of purpose, a determined resolve, refusing to be distracted in any way, being solidly committed to something and fully given to the pursuit of something as being valuable. In other words, they were like, you know what? The most important thing we are in the whole world is the people of God. That takes precedence over everything else. It takes precedence over my last name. It takes precedence over my fame, my fortune, my anything. It takes precedence above any other relationship that I have. What is first and foremost true about me is I'm part of the people of God. And notice this. Luke says that they were devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Okay? They loved the Word of God. They loved to hear the Word of God. They wanted to, to, to hear the, the, the truth about holiness and true righteousness. They wanted to hear about the gospel. They wanted to, truth to build their lives on, truth to renew their minds, truth by which they could be conformed to the image of Christ through the working of the Holy Spirit. They wanted the truth of the Word of God. They craved it. They longed for it. They were devoted to it. 
Don't bring any of that human philosophy up in here. Don't bring any of those Gnostic, worthless ideas in here. Don't bring worthless human schemes here. I want to hear the apostles' word. I want to hear the apostles' teaching because I, got, because I know through the apostles' teaching, I'm going to know God, right? But then the second thing he says here is that they devoted themselves to fellowship. And there are really two aspects of this fellowship that Luke's describing here. There's a vertical aspect and a horizontal one. John actually bundles these both together with the proclamation, you know, in in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3 when he says that that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. Speaking of the gospel, speaking of Jesus Christ. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Right? They devoted themselves to vertical fellowship. They devoted themselves to fellowship with the Father and with the Son. But they didn't do it in their own individualistic God tubes. Because they each shared in common life in God that all, that all believers have in Christ. They shared their lives with one another. They were devoted to true fellowship with one another. Genuine, deep sustained, forgiving, spiritually challenging, mutually supportive and honest relationships that point one another to Christ and spur one another on to greater godliness and greater devotion to the Lord. Now, why am I highlighting this? Why am I going back to Acts chapter 2 and bringing it into this discussion of Romans chapter 12 and verse 13? Here's why, beloved. It's because we need to strive for that same combination. A devotion to the Word of God and to the Lord Himself and a devotion to the fellowship of the saints. A devotion to fellowship and communion and service and partnership with one another. It's essential. Those things are essential to the strength and the health and the vibrancy of the church. In other words, here's what I'm saying to you. It doesn't do, it's not enough to simply be devoted to hearing the things of God from the Word of God without putting them into practice. To just hear it and have our minds tickled and have our, you know, our, 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 you know, theological banks filled up. And becoming these impressive amateur theologues without spiritual and emotional and physical investment in one another. A church that is puffed up with knowledge but doesn't love one another and isn't seeking fellowship and sharing with and partnering with one another that's that's filled with people that just do their thing, come together and go their own separate ways, and that's it. Listen to me. That church is grossly out of balance. Just like a church that doesn't insist on the apostles' teaching and insist on the Word of God but is really good at having, you know, parties in the park, is also grossly out of balance. 
These two things need to be in balance and they are essential to the strength and the health and the vibrancy of the church. We got to be devoted to the word of God and we must be devoted to fellowship with the Lord and with one another because everything else flows from this. So here's the question. You knew it was going here. Here's the question. Are we this kind of church? Are we? Do we have this kind of church? Does it describe us? Are we devoted to the Word of God? And devoted to God Himself? And likewise... Devoted to one another as we should be. Really, the question is not so much, are we a church like that? The question is, am I a Christian like that? Isn't it? Because West Salem Baptist Church is not just some monolithic thing, right? Made up of Lego pieces. This church is made up of people, isn't it? It's made up of you. That's why when people say, well, the church really ought to, I think to myself, are you doing it? Oh, well, I mean, I'm at the church. (laughs) You are the church. Oh, I meant somebody in the church besides me. Oh, well, thank you for clarifying. Right? Right? Am I that kind of Christian? Am I really devoted to the teaching of the Word of God, to hearing it and to doing it? Am I devoted to the Lord? Does He have first place in my heart and my life? And am I devoted to my brothers and my sisters in Christ? Does that describe me? Am I contributing to that kind of atmosphere? Am I contributing to the needs of the saints? Am I seeking to show hospitality? Am I doing my part to uphold and to strengthen my brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I letting my brothers and sisters in Christ minister to me? Well, these marks a genuine Christianity that Paul describes here in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13, are no small thing. They describe the kind of people that we must be in Christ, and then consequently, the kind of church that we must be because of the kind of Christians that we are in it. And so when we look at those words, in fact, look at them again. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We can read through that. And it is a helpful exercise to examine to what extent those words characterize me. Or you, right? But maybe a better exercise is to go through these descriptions and turn them to prayer. Lord, 
Cultivate in me a sincere and a genuine love for you. Kill the lesser loves that compete with supremacy for you in my heart. God, train my soul to abhor evil and hold fast to what is good. Lord, help me love my brothers and sisters with a sincere and a tangible affection. Lord, grant me the humility to honor other people above myself. Lord, make me fervent in my spirit so that I serve you with the whole of my life. Hold me fast in the midst of tribulation for my faith in Christ as I set my hope on that which is to be real when Christ returns and, and make me constant in prayer. Lord, cultivate in me an unceasing love for my brothers and sisters in Christ, one that is a practical love and that makes me to share in their burdens and their hardships and that teaches me to pour myself out, my life and my goods and my home for the sake of other people. Each of those commands, each of these exhortations are closely linked to the next and they're essential to walking in a way that pleases the Lord. Turn them to prayer, beloved. And then pursue them and walk them out to the praise of God's glory. Don't just pray about it. Act upon your prayers, right? Let us seek to be these kinds of Christians. Let us seek to be this kind of church. Let's pray together. Father, I'm pleading with you, Lord, that you would take these words that are seemingly less flashy and attractive and attention-grabbing. I pray that you would take these words, Lord God, from verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality, and I pray that you would bring them to bear powerfully upon our hearts. I pray that you'd help us to see that this really is a requirement, a litmus test, if you will, of what it looks like to be really faithfully following Christ. All these things work together, Lord. Loving you and loving one another and serving you and knowing that tribulation comes with serving you and knowing, Lord God, that you have provided a place of refuge and strength for us in the midst of a world that hates us in one another and one another here together. Lord, I pray that you'd remove any obstacles that we've placed in our lives to keep us from being obedient to these commands and exhortations. I pray that you would help us, Lord God, to seek a full-orbed and a complete and a robust life in Christ. One that, Lord God, is marked by Christ-likeness and marked by obedience to your commands and, and marked, Lord God, by your smile upon us as we seek to be obedient in all things. I pray, Lord God, for those that are here this morning, the Father, that are outside of the people of God, that are outside of the grace and the forgiveness that is in Christ. I pray, Lord God, that you would arrest their attention this morning. I pray, Father, that they would feel a deep sense of need in their own souls. I pray, Lord God, that they would recognize their estrangement from you and their estrangement from the people that are in this room 
And that they would realize it's because of their rebellion against your laws and their breaking of your commandments and their resistance to your lordship. And I pray, God, that you would humble them and I pray that you would convict them and I pray that you would bring them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and that you deliver them out of the darkness into the, of this world and into your marvelous light. I pray that they would see that as they are, there is a great gulf between them and the Almighty God. And that there's nothing that they can do to span that gulf. That only Christ can bring them to God. And that He can bring them to God because He's lived the life they couldn't live and didn't live. And He's died the death that they deserve. And He's risen from the dead to prove His power and His triumph over death and over sin. And has been declared with power to be the Son of God. I pray you move in our midst today to make us respond to your truth in the way that we should. Thank you, Lord, for your greatness. Thank you for your your kindness, your mercy, your gentleness to your people. Thank you that you are our God and King. We bless you and we love you in Jesus' name. Pray these things. Amen.